Good morning. Thanks, Brian. My name's my name's Rodney. I am uh, the pastor of Rooted Church, and I just want to uh, say thank you for um, allowing me to to fill in this morning. Um, it's a blessing to get to be here with you. It's just continued to be a blessing this year to be encouraged by and to be in your midst. I'm also introducing myself to give a disclaimer. If you're a visitor here today. Um, pastor Jeremiah cannot be held accountable for what I say. I am not the normal pastor. I am sure the normal pastor would never make a rookie mistake like letting his cell phone go off during the Lord's Prayer. So that is a visiting pastor thing. You can put that fully on me. That is not on him. This morning, uh, we are going to be looking at Psalm 1. Uh, at Rooted this semester, we're going to be spending some time in the Psalms. And in Psalm 1, uh, it's kind of a, a universal sermon for the book of Psalms for all of us as believers. It's a beautiful introduction to the collection of works that we find here in the Psalms. And this collection of works serve an ultimate purpose, which is to teach us how to speak to, be led by our precious Father. In other words, the Psalms teach us how to pray, and they teach us how to pray in the midst of all seasons. If I've been around you much at all, if we've had any Sunday after service, between service conversations, you probably know that I really enjoy watching ball. Huh, but if I'm like many of you, I am basking in the assurance of a bye week this week. Um, and a couple weeks ago, though, I had an experience watching ball like I have never experienced in my life. And I'm sure it was the case of many of you, for, uh, for many of you, even if you don't follow, typically, on January 2nd, I was watching football and something happened that I'd never seen before. And that when DeMar Hamlin like, took a, what seemed like a routine hit and lost consciousness for six minutes. What I witnessed that day was something like, I it was a feeling I'd never expected to experience during a sporting event. I was afraid. I was overcome with just this feeling of, of fear and what in the world is going on. I sat up late into the night checking Twitter. I wanted to know what was going on with him. I was reminded in that moment of how feeble life really is. But then I felt something else in the days that followed. I was reminded of something else that I had forgotten. And the days that followed, as, much, as shocking as that football, what I saw in that football field was, what I saw in the days that followed was this massive appeal to prayer by people from all walks of life. I watched an ESPN sports commentator pray for DeMar Hamlin on the air on a company owned by Disney. Like, it was crazy. All of a sudden, everybody believed in the Lord and everybody was appealing to God. And what I witnessed that week was humans doing the most human thing you can possibly do. You were created to receive and respond to the Word of God. Psalm 1 teaches us that our lives get off track, that we become unhealthy when we deny that aspect of our design and live apart from prayer and apart from the Word of God. You see, every man was created in the image of God. Every man knows deep down in his bones that he is connected to something far bigger and grander than himself, even the man who refuses to acknowledge the one to whom he is connected to. Even as Christians, whose eyes have been opened and whom have accepted the call of the Lord, the knowledge of who he is and thus who we are tends to get buried under lesser realities over time. In the spirit of the new year, I will use the treadmill as an example. 
That treadmill is shiny and new and nice in January, and it's intended to make me healthier, and I've got a a very rigid routine of what I'm going to do with this, and by spring break, it has become an extension of my closet. It's where all my winter coats are hung. It's now part of the utility room. It's become a a critical part of the house, but not for the reason it was intended. When we become distracted by the affairs of the world, by the wisdom of man, and often we, we, we do this and we live out entire days when turn into months that turn into the better portion of years, totally forgetting who we actually are because of Christ. And thus we fail to live from that reality. And then something happens and we are snapped back to reality. Sometimes we're snapped back by beauty. We see a sunset, we see a new baby, and suddenly we remember who God is. To a far lesser degree, this is true even for the non-believer who walks to the edge of the Grand Canyon and instinctually says the words, Oh my God. Now in that context, those words are not appropriate for God is not theirs and those words are not intended to give him glory. That's why grandma will thump you in the back of the head if she hears you say those words. But the root of cultural expressions such as that are rooted in some measure of the spiritual reality that all men are generally aware of and that's what we saw play out in those days following DeMar Hamlin's injury. People responding to what they know to be true deep down in their bones. That's sometimes we're snapped back by tragedy. That's again, that's what happened. And it's been rare in my life to see this happen in a way that had such a broad effect. The most powerful demonstration of this kind of thing in my life was when I was a freshman in high school and I was sitting in first period when the twin, twin towers were struck. Some of you will be, think I'm old from that. Some of you will think I'm super young from that. It should hit the whole room. I remember just even being a high schooler, seeing Christians lock arms and humbly return to the church in droves. Like I'd, something I, I could, I, even I was a pastor's kid and I remember seeing that in our own church. Who are all these visitors? And it just, it happened for weeks and weeks. And non-Christians, they laid down their arms and they publicly prayed and cried out to God for help. However, then time passed and we eventually turned back to our worldly comforts And once again, we forgot who God is and thus who we are. In our lifetimes, we have all bore witness to this cycle of man. Sin leads to death and devastation. We cry out for help, turning our attention to God. God gives grace, and then we eventually return to our own ways. We repeat the pattern that God summarized so well in Hosea 13.6 when he said, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, They became proud. Then they forgot me. This tendency is why the Psalms are so important. In the midst of beauty, tragedy, and contentment, we need to know how to walk with God. This is why David is such a prominent figure in the Psalms. 73 of the Psalms are attributed to him. Because in David, we see the full spectrum of human experience. We know more about the life of David than any other man or woman in all of Scripture. We know about his childhood. We know about his closest friendships. We know about the people that hated him. We know about his failures, his successes, and ultimately we know about his death. And in all of these seasons, we see David's prayers. Everything became prayer for David. The good, the bad, anger, joy, fear, doubt, all of it. 
became an opportunity to come before the Lord, and that is what is recorded here in this book. David experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet he screwed up about as bad as any child of God ever has. This morning at our rooted service, I preached from Psalm 3. And for the first time in my ministry, I had to send out a warning um, in advance of the sermon so that parents could decide whether or not their kids would sit in attendance this morning. Because Psalm 3 is rooted in the story of 2 Samuel 13. Psalm 3 is written because David's son wants to kill him. And David wants to kill, Absalom wants to kill David because when his sister was assaulted, David did nothing. He was a coward and he wasn't a very good father. David screwed up. Like what happened with him and Bathsheba is one thing. But then not too much longer farther down in the book, we see that happen within his own children and him failed to act accordingly. David experienced the highest of highs, but his failures were as deep as any man who ever walked the earth. Yet the key to his endurance even in the midst of his own self-induced suffering, the thing that God gave him that led him to die a faithful man, that led him to call upon the Lord, even when he was on the run, abandoned by everybody, and wondering if he was even saved as his son chased after him to kill him, was that he never stopped seeking and speaking with God. He never stopped believing in God's promise that a redeemer would come through him. That even though his children had abandoned him, and rightfully so, a son would come from him who would live perfectly, who would never abandon him, and who would redeem him. Even when David failed, he remembered this promise. He got back up, repented, and depended on the power of the Lord to lead him forward. Like David, the promise and the power of God revealed in the Psalms is intended to do the same for us so that we might strive to live a life that pleases God. And that's the appeal of verses 1 through 3 where it says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The Psalms open with a burst of wisdom in verse 1. In verse 1 of Psalm 1, we see that in order to live a prayerful life that says yes to God, we must say no to the world and be willing to do so. It says here that one of the ways we do this is we do not walk with the wicked. The word for blessed in this text is describing a life that is rewarding, fulfilling, a life of contentment. In order for one to have such a life, they must be willing to turn away from certain things, and the first is the wisdom of the world. And this sounds simple enough, but it's actually a really difficult thing for those who even come into buildings like this to do. Like the rich young ruler was all about Jesus and all that God offered. Perfect church member. Man, a young guy's got a job. He probably ties. He seems like the perfect guy. But when he's confronted with turning his way from the world to follow Jesus, yeah, that's where you lost him. We have to ask ourselves the question regularly. Have we surrounded ourselves and with those who are following Jesus. Whatever 
whether, you, whether we want to admit it or not, the truth is that we are influenced and shaped by those we spend the most time with. That is why the rhythms of the church matter. There's a tendency for people who don't really want to be closely associated with the church to just refer to Big C Church in order that we might not have to be accountable with our lives to any particular group of people or leaders. But this is not the model of Scripture. Walking alongside brothers and sisters that truly know us, disciple us, speak truth to us, this is essential for maturing as a believer, and that's why God has given us the church. You were made to be known and to be known by spiritual brothers and sisters. So I ask you this morning, are, are you known? Do the people in this room, do the people that walk in community with you, do they know the deepest fears, the deepest hurts, the deepest struggles of your heart? If not, you are missing out on the full beauty of this gift that God has given us. If God really is who he says he is and has done what he said he's done, if the righteousness of Christ has truly been given to you and you have drank from the water of life, then you need to hold nothing back from those whom you walk amongst. Jesus has paid for it. You're to be known spiritually by those who love Jesus. Now, Jesus was certainly a friend of sinners, and we should be also. This text isn't speaking against that. However, we do need to remember that we are not God. In the calling of his disciples, we see a model for our own lives. We are to be equipped by our time with God in his word amongst his people, strengthened and held accountable by one another, and then we are sent out to show his love to the world as missionaries in all of the places that he sends us. We are to show love to sinners, but these first few verses in the Psalms show us that we don't stand with sinners. In the original language, this phrase, don't stand, means don't stand in the pathway of sinners. Essentially, this phrase means we don't live our life as the sa on the same path as those who live apart from God. The ideas, values, politics, philosophies of the world cannot be the ultimate guide for the child of God. That's not where our hope is found. The sinner in this instance is one who regularly stands on the opposite side of God in terms of his way of life. He's likely applauded by the world, called a hero by other sinners, but his path leads to death. Yes, we can love him, but we don't take his path. We love him by calling him to Christ. For this verse also says that we don't sit with scoffers. We don't find comfort in sitting with mockers of God. It's easy to look at the life of Jesus and use his example to justify regular participation in poor company. However, we must acknowledge that Jesus was transparent and unapologetic about his intentions. In Luke 5.32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The way that Jesus loved the sinner was profound and that he came bringing truth, calling them off of their pathway onto his, but he did so as one who genuinely loved him. And those who were aware of their lostness were looking for nothing else. He wasn't the angry guy with the cardboard signs standing outside the, car, the concert. No, he broke bread in their homes as a genuine friend, but a genuine friend bringing truth and salvation. The idea of transitioning from standing to sitting is that if we walk in the path of the wicked, we eventually sit down and make it our home. It becomes our place of comfort. 
This is the posture from which we become a scoffer, meaning we become one who believes they are self-sufficient and who pridefully believes they no longer need God. Note, the scoffer can be very religious, using God for his own purposes. Christian, in 2023, you need less of the world and its affairs and its problems, and you need more of God's promise. I heard a story recently. There's a story about a young man, and the young man was struggling in life. He was just struggling with, uh, with knowing how to live, and he, he was all over the place emotionally. He didn't seem to have consistency in any area, any area of his life, so he decided to go to the wisest man he knew and ask him how to, how to live, how to fix this. And so he went to his grandfather's house. And he goes to his grandfather's house and he says, Grandfather, teach me how to live. I'm all over the place. I'm up, I'm down, I'm inconsistent. How do I become like you? So the grandfather invited him in and they sat at the kitchen table. And the grandfather took two porcelain cups and set them on opposite ends of the table. And he went to the grandson's cup and he began to fill it up with tea. And as the tea reached the brim of the cup, the grandpa did not stop. And the tea ran over the edge of the cup. And then it ran across the table and it spilled into the grandson's lap. And he jumped up. He said, Grandpa, what are you doing? And the grandpa explained to him, you're like that cup. You have so much coming in that it just pour, it's just pouring over, and everywhere it goes, it just burns anybody it comes into contact with. And he pointed to the cup on the other side of the table, and he said, see this cup that just sits still, waiting to be filled with the right amount of exactly what it needs. You need to be like this cup. If we desire to live a blessed life, we need to stop being like the cup that is spilling over with all that the world is pouring into it constantly. With all of our, whatever our favorite news station says, whatever our favorite app is pouring in. And we need to be able to sit still, patiently waiting and ready to say yes to God's word. That's what verse 2 tells us to do. To say yes to God's word. To delight in the law of the Lord and on his law meditate day and night. We need to be people who love the Bible. Otherwise, something is desperately wrong. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, the word of the Lord is the daily bread of the true believer. We should delight in the word of God, and as we give our no to the world and its ways, we give our absolute yes to God and his instruction. Maybe this isn't easy for you today. Maybe if you're honest you actually struggle with desiring to even be in God's word. I want to assure you this morning, Jesus knows your struggle and he has grace for you and it's in God's word. I want to encourage you, you're not alone in that struggle. You struggle with the word of God because it is intended to change and stretch you. Reading the Bible is not supposed to feel the same way as watching your favorite Netflix show. Don't despair over the fact it doesn't feel the same. It wasn't supposed to feel the same because it's not doing the same thing. Saying yes to God's word is saying yes to God's direction for your life. Anything healthy you do in your life was likely not natural. You likely, your flesh likely resisted it in the beginning. As a child doesn't like to eat healthy food, a man struggles to begin regularly exercising, 
In both cases, what they need is discipline. And the same is true with Scripture. Discipline gets you started, but what will keep you is the joy you find in remembering God's promise. As you begin your Bible reading plan this year, I assume January is a really good month for the book of Genesis. Genesis gets a lot of press in the month of January. If you haven't started a Bible reading plan this year, I encourage you to. It's not too late. But as you do that, it's as if you're slowly beginning to take the clothes off the treadmill. And the next thing you know, you actually turn that thing on. And then you're walking on it. And before you know, you are running further than you ever thought you could. The joy produced by receiving the word of God given to you will take hold of you and in time it will do its work and it will produce delight in you if you will stay the course. Say yes to God's word and then say yes to God's wisdom. What begins as delight develops into ongoing meditation. When you read the word of God, you might feel that you don't understand it that well. So read it again. Think about it. You don't have to get the whole page or the whole chapter. Take that part that is just baffling you and let it roll around in there. Go to others and ask, what do I do with this? Allow God's word to become ingrained in you to the point that you think about it often. Your mind, it's always working. It's pondering. Give it something worthy of all of its work. What do you think about when you daydream? What song do you sing in your head as you walk? What thought immediately comes to your mind when tragedy hits? What if the answer to each of these questions was from the Word of God? This can be so, but it begins with discipline. Joshua 1.8 says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Read God's word, and then find time to be still, in the quiet, to ponder it, wrestle with it, and delight in it. If you don't know how to do this, I will give you a really simple Bible study that I give to our people all the time right now, and it applies to all of Scripture. Open the text, read it, and ask four questions. Based off this text, who is God? What has he done? So who am I and how shall I live? Every text in scripture speaks to those four questions. And as you do this, you'll be empowered to say yes to God's will. In verse 3, we see an image. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Man, verse 3. It's got really good imagery there. That would be a really great symbol for a church to be associated with. It's a tree with really deep roots. When you delight in God's word, you're like a tree by the river that has a continual source of water. You live in the desert. Death, devastation, and thirst are all around you all the time. Yet you are planted next to a never-ending stream of water. And your roots are dug deep down into it. So you never wither away because your soul is always getting what it needs in all seasons. The life of the righteous is marked by strength and stability. Wind, drought, and storms will come, but the deep roots keep the tree standing so that it brings forth fruit in the midst of all 
seasons. Because the word of God prevents your leaves from withering. When the seasons change, when dryness takes place, we see withered leaves that reveal death. But this isn't so with the Christian planted firmly in the gospel. Your leaves stay green. And if they're not, if they begin to wither for a moment, you know how to restore them. The Puritan John Trapp once wrote, There are no barren trees in God's orchard, and yet they may have their fits of barrenness, as an apple tree sometimes has, but they will re-flourish with advantage. Our stream is unceasing, unrelenting, and we have full access to it all the time. If we have gone through a season of barrenness, a season of struggle, God beckons us, he reminds us that the stream is right there. We have not lost it. The one who relishes this truth, who relishes the word of God and is guided by it, prospers in all things. Not because life becomes easy. Anybody who ever tells you that is a liar, a fool, and a salesman. You have broken relationships. Jesus had the most broken relationships. You experience physical pain. Jesus experienced the greatest physical pain. You don't have any money. You're struggling financially. Jesus needed friends to give him a place to sleep and have food to eat. Following Jesus does not guarantee an easy life, but it guarantees hope in the midst of all circumstances because God brings forth something good and wonderful out of everything for those who are his. And that's what we see in David in the midst of the Psalms. Even tough circumstances bring forth fruit that shall prosper. And this is only true in the child of God, the one whose roots have been sunk into the river of mercy by Jesus Christ. To live in a way that honors this is an incredible gift. It's to live in a way that says no to the world and yes to God. It's to be one who flees from the life that displeases God. And that's what verses, the last verses speak to. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6, starting in verse 4, where we see the call to flee from the useless life. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the drastic opposite of the deeply rooted tree. It blows wherever the wind of culture, wherever the wind of anger, wherever the, the, the wind of my temporary, fleeting, ever-changing emotions wants to take it. It's useless. The person like this looks for blessing wherever the wind leads, but in the end, they stand for nothing. No roots, no foundation, no meaning. The person who is like chaff lives a useless life. We're to flee from that, and we're to flee from the senseless life. Verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Every man comes to a place of deciding whether to go God's ways or his. And this decision has eternal consequence, as the one who rejects God's ways will not be able to stand before God on the day of judgment. God is perfectly holy, and we are not. The one who says yes to God is saying yes to the free gift of grace given through Jesus Christ. He will stand before God, and when God asks him why he is worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven, he will point boldly to the man on the white horse. If life is an old western, we're all on black horses wearing black hats. 
But Jesus is the only one on a white horse, dressed in white. And when we arrive at eternity, the only proper response the Christian has as to why we should enter in is to point to him. The one whose name you prayed all of your days. And who says that by, it says, scripture says that it's by his blood that you have been made righteous to enter the kingdom. Because of him, we have hope. And so, according to verse 6, we flee from a hopeless life. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked is hopeless. Jesus spoke frequently of the two ways. He spoke about a broad and a narrow gate. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. And here in verse 6, we see the end result of the road which we choose, to be known by the Lord or to perish. Our destiny is defined by either Jesus or our flesh. We just, Jesus offers each man the opportunity to bring before him what we want. And we can either bring our own works, our own ability to keep the law perfectly, or we can bring forward the righteousness of Jesus who did keep the law perfectly. One gives us eternal hope, the other gives us certain failure. In Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Our world is full of ways that seem right to man. It doesn't matter what aisle you sit on. It doesn't matter. This is true of the legalist and the one who lives for license. It's true of both. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Growing in the, my understanding of the truth of the gospel is growing in my awareness of just how sinful I am, but also at the same time how big God's grace is in light of that. If I am growing unequally in either one of those realities, some of us, we are naturally prone to understand how wicked we are. And we're prone to license because of that. Because if it's true that I'm, my life is based on my own merit, then why not live, drink, and eat for tomorrow we die? Why not embrace license? If I believe, though, that I'm really not that bad and that God's grace has been given to me based on what I have done, then I become a legalist. Look how awesome I am. God owes me taxes. He owes me because of what a great job I've done. We're all prone to legalism or license, but the truth of God's grace is something much more profound. We were dead and in need of salvation, and he offered it to us, not because of our works, but because of how loving and gracious he is. So you are worse than you think you are, but God's grace is greater than you understand or know that it is. And that is what Jesus means when he says to the people looking at the two roads, I am the way. We know that's true because we know we are his sheep and we are called to graze where he has called us to. And when we graze in the fields that he's called us to, we flourish. As we close this morning, I decided to share a story with you because you're one of your pastors, one I'm filling in for today, he gave me a little book for Christmas, and I've really enjoyed it. And there's a short, short little story in this book that I thought appropriate to share with you as we close this morning. The story goes like this. I'm really into grandpa wisdom today, so bear with me. One time on a sweltering August night, grandfather and I made camp down by the ocean. He said, while I teach you about the ways of war, 
I want you to know that the real struggle is between the two wolves that live inside of each of us. Two wolves, I asked, seated on an old log near the fire. My eyes were transfixed by the flames twisting uncomfortably in the night air. One wolf is evil, he continued. It is anger, envy, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, deceit, and false pride. He paused, poking the embers of our fire with a long stick he'd been carving. The other is good. It is joy, love, hope, serenity, humility, loving kindness, forgiveness, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. I considered that for a moment, and then I tentatively asked, which wolf will win? Sparks danced towards the stars as the old man stared into the glare of the flames and replied, whichever one you feed. The metaphor of this grandfather is not a perfect one, but it is filled with wisdom. I believe the grandfather's story is mostly true for the non-believer. As we saw after that injury, as we saw a couple weeks ago, every man is born with an awareness of good and evil, and every man decides on a basic level which tendency of theirs they will feed. However, Scripture tells us that because of the curse, this is not a fight we will win apart from Christ. The wolf of our flesh is far, far more powerful than the wolf of our conscience. Yet because of the gospel, because of the truth that God so loved you, that he sent his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for you, but everlasting righteousness, because that is true, that weaker wolf of conscience has been replaced by a lion, the very spirit of God himself. So each day you wake up and you choose whether to feed the wolf that is your flesh or to partake of the life-giving sustenance offered you by the lion like a tree who is rooted beside a river. Don't sit with the fool, don't feed the wolf, but walk in the ways of wisdom and grace and mercy. Delight in the word of God and live a life of blessing that is preparing you for the eternal reality you have inherited through Christ. Would you pray with me to that end?